Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. Um, I'm Lauren Dixon. I'm the awards manager for the Walkley Foundation. Um, this month, we turn our minds to one of our most beloved subsets of the Australian media, cartoonists and illustrators. They lampoon our politicians, provide a running commentary on the day's big issues, and can sum up a complex story with a perfect gag. And on top of all of that, they have to be funny. Tonight we'll find out more about how some of Australia's favourite cartoonists work, their process, how they approach news stories and decide what to draw. They'll show us some of their favourite work and talk about how interactive and digital storytelling techniques are becoming part of some of cartoonists' arsenal. So, now on to the discussion. If you have a question, please wait for our Q&A at the end. You'll see people on the sides holding microphones. You can also join in the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag at Walkleys. But could you just switch your phones onto silent, please? So now it's time to hand over to Lindsay Foyle, who will lead tonight's discussion. Lindsay has worked on The Bulletin and The Australian, and he is currently working as a freelance cartoonist while writing books on the history of Australian cartooning. Welcome, Lindsay, and our panel. Thank you. Um, I thought we'd start tonight by getting everybody up here to do a quick introduction of themselves, just so you know who to aim the cabbages at. So we'll start with Kathy Wilcox. Kathy? <laughs> you, you want me to cool down that quickly? Yes. <laughs> if anyone gets a chance to go down to the, to the State Library car park dock. <laughs> give a piece of their mind. Anyway, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be over it really, really soon. I'm just <laughs> still annoyed. Um, from five minutes ago, I've been working at the Sydney Morning Herald uh, and Fairfax newspapers um, mostly on and with a tiny bit off from around about um, 1989. Remember that? That was last century. And, um, uh, and uh, sort of doing variously pocket cartoons and political cartoons and cartoons on where, whatever is going. Um, I have also uh, illustrated numerous children's books um, and, uh, and uh, I am, I suppose I could call myself a member of the um, organisation Cartooning for Peace, um, which is a, an in initiative of, um, of Jean Plantu at the at Le Monde in France. Um, and, uh, and I continue um, to be one of the surviving employees at, at uh, the Fairfax organisation. Um, me and Kate McClymont managed to sort of put the paper together, you know, <laughs> between us. And um, so, so that's me. And on the uh, other end of the uh, financial earnings scale, <laughs> Fiona down the end. Thanks, Lindsay. It's nice of you to remind me. Um, yes, I'm a freelancer. Explaining um, Lindsay's uh, comment. Yes. So I've. Uh, my name is Fiona Kataskis. I've been a freelance cartoonist for 17 years now, and have worked um, in all sorts of capacities. Done a lot of political stuff for um, lots of different newspapers and magazines. I've worked um, worked as a freelancer for. The Herald, The Australian, The Age, The Financial Review over the years when there used to be a lot of um, freelancing funds for, free, for freelancers in the papers and um, I've also worked for lots and lots of um, online magazines, I work for medical magazines, I do book illustrations for all sorts of books so one of the wonderful things about freelance cartooning is you learn a lot of things about a lot of things, you get sort of here do a cartoon about this and so you get to learn new things all the time. Right, and the last person on the panel is Anton Emden. Anton 
is at the other end of the financial scale compared to Fiona. <laughs> he's a very successful, highly <laughs> prized illustrator and cartoonist. Wow. Well. <laughs> Um, well, I'm not sure about that. Um, I, I've been, I do only freelance um, and I've been working for many magazines. Um, my current sort of crop at the moment that I do regularly are um, uh, People, Penthouse, um, The Spectator, Mad Magazine in the States and a couple in the UK business sort of ones. Um, I also do sort of corporate uh, commercial work, um, a little bit of book here and there. Uh, whatever sort of comes my way. A bit of mascots and, um, and character design as well. Now, having got the hard bit out of the way, the introductions, we thought we might go on to something very simple and, and talk about uh, the recent issue of uh, Mike Carlton and the accompanying cartoon with it. And once we've got that simple thing, we'll go on to more difficult things later. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, because Cathy works on at Fairfax and would have an insight into the reaction to the Glen Laviva cartoon that uh, accompanied Mike Carlton's column. I think, does everybody know about it and aware of it? There's a lot of nodding heads, that's excellent. Um, Cathy, what, what reaction was there in Fairfax to it initially and how did it build? Okay, I did hear one person say I haven't seen it. So is anyone not aware of this, this uh, contentious cartoon? Righto, oh. a, few, a few hands there. So, to give the context, the article, the, the comment piece was by Mike Carlton, who until very recently was the Saturday columnist in the News Review of the Herald. And so Glenn Lelivre, um regularly, his illustrations or cartoons accompany Mike's piece. So they reflect what's being talked about. And the issue in this case was a really no holds barred um, critique of Israel in Gaza, and and uh, you know it was it was saying saying things unequivocally, uh, really cri critical of of um, Netanyahu and Likud and and the hardline Israeli um, line uh, in in uh, in the bombardment of of Gaza. Uh, so he, and he preempted that there would be flack, that there would be a lot of negative response to this column, and he said it was just, you know, to be expected. So, uh, Glenn's cartoon, and I read the, the column initially on the system uh, online, so I was really uh, curious, I must say, um, to see what Glenn would do for it, because Glenn is, is a courageous cartoonist, and he's been known to cross lines before at the, at the Herald. I've, you know, I'm, I'm institutionalised, I'm an insider, I kind of sometimes hear the whispers of oh you know we've had to pull a Glenn Glenn is a is a, a freelancer who you know who's now I think on a on a partial contract but um but for quite a while he was he was a, a rare freelancer that um that was putting things in and he occasionally would rub um, various editors up the wrong way with his work being uh, you know kind of going too going too far and making the editors uncomfortable. Anyway, so I was curious as to what Glenn would do and saw then the next day uh, the, the cartoon. So the cartoon he showed was uh, an old man in, a, in an armchair, in a comfy armchair, shown from behind, man in profile, holding the remote control, clearly pressing a button, and over yonder is kablooey, is the big explosion. And so... and. 
added to that, there were details about this man. He was drawn with, uh, with a, a particular profile that, that, uh, that the critique drawn, you know, drawn on it was, was that he, he had been given a, a distinctly Jewish profile, um, whatever that is, and uh, a, a kippah, a yamulka, whatever, a skull cap. And on the back of the chair was the Star of David, so that you were in no doubt as to who this was doing this action. Now, it just set off, you know, it just set off bombs all around the place. Fortunately, in our lovely, peaceful country, the bombs are, are verbal, um, even if they're, they're fiery and, um, and on social media and, and so forth. But there was all sorts of, of uh, hell to pay for, these, for this depiction. The main thing being, the main critique being that uh, the the depiction of the Jewish caricature—that's what the what the um, uh, what Jewish people were concerned about—and also that it, by drawing a star of David on the back of the chair, he was conflating Judaism with the actions of Israel and not leaving those things divided. So, so there t to me were the problems as well you know in, in seeing it I could sort of see uh, immediately on seeing it that there there are a couple of problems right there so uh, so anyway the, the 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 negative press that came from that which you may or may not have heard about were that uh, um, uh, Mike Carlton received a lot of um, a lot of hate mail or the paper got a lot of a lot of mail you know very critical why did they run this piece why did they run that cartoon and so forth Mike Carlton hit back at some of his critics on social media in a fairly intemperate way uh, to the extent that he was asked to apologise and, and asked to, to step aside for a few weeks and he resigned in, in I'd say, high dudgeon. Um, nobody seems to have asked Glenn Lever to, to um, resign or, you know, or, or you know, forced him to leave or anything. And I think in, in case of cartoons, um, my view is that it's very much the um, the responsibility of the uh, of the editor to say yay or nay to whether something is published or not. But you know, tell, stop me if I'm going on too much. But but the in my view there are there are ways and there are ways and and the Middle East uh, and Gaza and and all these issues of, of settlements and so forth. The, the, the Middle East is basically the the hottest topic for for drawing and also the most contentious. And and you're under great um, uh, uh, obligation to be as as clear as you possibly can with with your point and as fair-minded and to have considered all the possible negative interpretations of what you can be, you can put out there because you really don't want unintended consequences yeah. um, and and every little piece of communication in your drawing. Uh, means something. Somebody's going to read something into it. So I could have seen a way that Glenn could have done his cartoon w where he could have left off, uh, you know, had the had the chair higher than the man in it, so you wouldn't have seen his head. You would have just seen his hand with the remote control, and had it been um, an Israeli flag, not just the Star of David. Those are things which maybe you know we're not experts, and we overlook. The, the details of them because the Star of David is on the Israeli flag as far as I know yeah. um, but you know with without the, the the state indicator that was the thing that um, that caused the trouble the, the simplest thing would have been to make it Netanyahu mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's yeah I mean that I mean yeah. then it wouldn't have been just 
a, a Jewish person, yeah. Yeah, it would have been, would have been political. Social. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Or a scene, because because he was referencing in his cartoon photographs which have been shown of people sitting in couches in that same, in that same thing. So he could have just drawn some generic people or, you know, sitting there and it would have been by the implication of that the cartoon was within that article would have been understood what, had, what he was getting at. Se- I think a lot of people hadn't seen that image uh, as well. Mm. See, there's a curse of the news junkie. You recognise things that maybe, you know, yeah. no, other yeah. people... Yeah, he image- gave that explanation afterwards that those that was the, the reference material he was using. Because when I first saw the cartoon, I hadn't seen the, the photograph. No. And so, I mean, I, I understood its meaning, I guess, but when you saw the photograph, you go, oh, that makes sense. But I guess you can't assume that everyone's mm. seen as much. Mm. Yeah. Well, a, a freelance cartoonist, Wes Mountain, wrote an interesting piece about visu- about that cartoon and about visual shorthand. And so when you're a cartoonist, there's certain ways, you know, you're dealing with metaphors and, and images and there's, a certain, there's, there's ways of, you know, a fat capitalist, for example. Very few people in today's, you know, you wouldn't walk around, Martin, the, the bank areas and see p- people in shiny top hats with you know, huge guts and pinstripe suits, but that still works as a visual metaphor. And that's part of the reason the Joe Hockey cigar really took off because that's always been, you know, shorthand for a, a wealthy person having the cigar. So when he was photographed with a cigar and it just fit, you know, that kind of visual shorthand worked. Um, and so there's a lot of ways I'm diverse. But, but anyway, but, but Wes Mountain basically said the problem he thought, which I agreed with, with Glenn's cartoon, was that he used the wrong visual short... He just thought, I'll draw... A Jewish man in in a couch, but his visual shorthand was very jarring because having the hook nose and the Star of David instantly, like I saw the cartoon, I went, "Whoa, that's not uh, that." I knew that that wasn't what Glenn meant, but I kind of thought, "Oh, he just shouldn't have yeah. used that depiction. That shorthand was not not the right thing." Whereas I thought the actual message of the cartoon was for fair point. But it it is also a subject that brings a lot of attention to the cartoonist no matter when the cartoon mm. is drawn. Yeah. If, if, if a cartoonist draws somebody in the Middle East doing anything relating to the war or the conflict, you get flack from the people who are opposed to that point of view. And cartoons always have a point of view. They're, they're funny, but they reflect something that's being said. Um, a couple of days after Glenn's cartoon, Bill Leek had a cartoon which I thought was more well, offensive in a lot of ways, but it reflected the rev- uh, an, another situation where it was a, an Arab man with a little kid telling him that he'd done very well and to go out and to... Um, win the PR war for daddy. Mm. Yeah, win the yeah. PR war for daddy and get bombed. But and the, 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 the Arab man was, was depicted in... in he was a ...camouflage. Yeah. He yeah. was clearly... He wasn't just a man yeah. on the street. Oh, yeah. no, no, then, no. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I didn't get that reaction for I didn't go, oh, it's just a terrorist, because there's, that's a loaded... There's a lot... That, that, uh, uh, to me, anyway, that... The image, that's not just in isolation. There's a whole lot of negative views of Muslims in Australia and things like that already. So that can... Even though he drew a terrorist, I think there's a... There, that can for... Because the, there were a lot of you know, Muslim Australians who found that cartoon very offensive because they felt like there was a conflation. And I think, you know, you can never know how people are going to react to things and that there are all these sensitivities around that, um, you know, I I can understand why a lot of people in the Muslim community would have been really offended by that cartoon. Oh, yeah. And and sometimes cartoons are drawn to offend Mm. as well as be Mm. funny. That they might Mm. make one part of the population laugh and the rest of the 
population doesn't. And yeah. it's like if you draw Joe Hockey with a cigar, a large number of people will laugh and a lot of other people will say it's being unfair to poor little Joe. So, yeah. Or cigars. Yes, and cigars. <laughs> <laughs> but, but people, um, cartoonists always fall back on shorthand because the public spend about three seconds looking at the cartoon, taking it in, reading the caption, and they either laugh and turn the page or they go, uh, and turn the page. But three seconds is it. So you've they got to They never do have that. They always laugh. <laughs> but you're talking about your work. I'm talking about my work. <laughs> Anton, do you do you fall back on shorthand in your illustrative work for the different magazines? All the time. Um, and it's funny, I got into a little bit of trouble a few months back with the whole Middle Eastern thing where I drew, drew a couple of um, um, Muslims with, with large noses. And it's... It, it was the same thing. I can't, I, it, wasn't, it was for the spectator, so it wasn't that high profile. But at the same time, I couldn't give them little ski jump noses, and I was, I was drawing a cartoon where everything was exaggerated. So it's very, it's very hard, I think, to, to sort of to walk that line. It's not in here, but yeah, um, yeah I don't know. I think, it, I think it's a hard job that, that cartoonists have got to get a message across really quickly, especially for cover art. You haven't even got three seconds with cover art. You've got like about one second where they've got to just understand it. And generally on cover, cover art, there are no words either. So, And is that harder? Because that's something that's going to make people buy a magazine, the cover art, cover art as well. So wouldn't there be like, well, that's the extra thing. It's pressure? Got be, it's got to be striking. They've got to understand it in a second. Um, so, so, yeah, you, you almost, you, you do have to sort of rely on certain sort of stereotypes to, to, to show certain, you know, people. Or, or a simplicity of message in any case. It can't, it can't afford to be ambiguous mm. or, or, you know, require too much work. Mm. I mean, in, in what I do, I can, I can kind of afford to let the reader do a bit of work. And mm. if, they, if they know my work, they might not just reject it out of hand if they don't get it in the first instance because mm. they might go, oh, okay, there's a bit of work to do here, you know, and, and have the satisfaction of, of getting it after thinking about it or something, but, but obviously on a, on a cover, mm. you kind of don't have that luxury. No, exactly. I was going to say something too, Elsa, about, uh, about the, the matter of the, of the stereotypes and the, and the, the trouble it brings, because I, I, I often you know, think it's important to, uh, to, to recognise the, the culture that we live in which is at the same time incredibly tolerant uh, of, of the message and, and we think that we're really, really liberal about things, but also it's, it's pretty safe. There are not terrible, terrible consequences usually when we do things that are, that are a bit outrageous. So we, we're inclined to be sometimes, I think, a little precious um, here. And, uh, and when you're talking about the, uh, you know, how you depicted the Arabs or whatever, um, one of the cartoonists that I've met um, um, from, um, from Algeria uh, in in, um, in one of the cartooning for peace conferences is uh, is a fellow who who quite regularly uh, gets in trouble for his cartoons because he's he's criticising a regime um, uh, you know yeah. fairly totalitarian regime of in, in Algeria and and he would kind of have fun at at pushing kind of further and further to to you know get the ire of the of the people he would be depicting depicting um, such as as depicting a lot of the uh, the military and the generals mm. um, uh, as these as these guys with pigtails and kind of little little skirts on and things like that you know he'd kind of you know find the find a criti criticism that that's not it's actually nothing you can really um, pin him down on because 
<laughs> what are you saying that they're a bunch of, you know, little girls or something? Um, but at the same time, really annoying them a, a whole lot. And um, and he and his depictions of, you know, he, his depiction of women in in um, in burqa, you know, they're 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 like little post boxes really with feet. They they don't get to. He he's he's unequivocal in showing how these women aren't allowed to have. Uh, a, a presence, a personality, an interaction, except for being, you know, covered and, and so forth. But they're outrageously funny cartoons at the same time. And he he gets arrested and he gets brought before the court and he gets thrown in in, in jail for a week or so. But the, the there's a nod and a wink from the from the um, from the judge because ultimately he's not going to be removed from the newspaper because that would be a very bad look for the uh, for the regime if they went, you know removing cartoonists you know the, having a cartoonist gives a very good impression that that we have a free press <laughs> yes, so, so you can laugh at yourself and so that's right so so it's kind of this so he he plays that line as uh, you know and gets as much out of that as he can so it's quite um yeah that's very nice Iran isn't so tolerant because there's been a few cartoonists in Iran locked up over the past 30 years or so. There's one who is in, I can't remember his name, but he is doing, um, he's in prison at the moment. And his, when you see the cartoon that got him put in prison, it's an illustration of, it was, it was actually just an illustration and it's quite um, a straightforward illustration to go in a newspaper of um, a soccer player kicking a ball. But, and it's a soccer ball, but because someone paranoid, and this is the state of paranoia that you're so terrified of being laughed at or represented in any way, thought that the black marks on the ball, and there's a sort of shadow on the ball that it looked like a Ayatollah Khomeini's face, and it just looks nothing like, like you look at this, when you know the story, you just think, wow, that is one totally crazy level of paranoia and just abject. So probably someone saw it and made that comment and then it whipped into a frenzy. And this guy got 16, got lashes. He went, I think he was in prison for a couple of years, then he was released and then he got re-imprisoned re for something that is to us so extraordinary. And yet it shows that, you know, taking the piss can have a huge power in itself, even though this guy didn't even mean to do that. There was no intention. As far as he knew, he was drawing a soccer player. But when sensitivities are that heightened, there's a few Iranian cartoonists who have... Um, have made a joke and have been imprisoned pretty um, quick smart as well and for long periods of time. No, the guy that had his hands broken? Yeah. Was that in Iran or was that...? I think it was in Iran. But right. we're very lucky in Australia because most of the time the reaction cartoonists get <coughs> is, uh, is verbal. Every now and again um, they get letters which... Um, uh, one, I'm just trying to remember which cartoon it was. It was I think it was um, one of the cartoonists in Perth received an envelope full of poo <laughs> uh, as a comment on his cartoon. The cartoon was wrapped up in it. Um, or it so was much effort. In the cartoon. Yeah. Wow. He really made the effort to do yeah, yeah. it. And for a quite a number of years I worked on The Australian and Bill Leake was the major cartoonist and he would get abusive emails all the time and he, he and I was drawing little pocket cartoons and he'd point out that I would get no criticism for my cartoons and often the cartoon carried a far more biting comment than his big one but because it was little it dragged in a little, little very little attention which was quite nice but one person got to sending Bill emails almost every day 
and the emails got more and more offensive. And Bill started off replying, saying, I'm sorry you're upset, but, you know, I was trying to do my best and everything. And the emails got worse and worse and more swear words and more threats and everything. And in the end, Bill got the, this email and it was just full of foul language. And he wrote back and he said, and this is the last correspondence that they, the two of them ever had, Bill wrote back and said, thank you for the offer of marrying your daughter. Unfortunately, I have to decline because of other commitments. <laughs> and then sent it back. He never got another response. <laughs> um, and on the point of... of uh on the point of uh, uh, big cartoons re receiving the flack and small ones not, there's, there's also a hierarchy to where the, where the cartoon is because I have, over the years, I remember, I think it was back when Hugh Grant was, was caught um, mm. in flagrante with a prostitute on, on uh, you know, in LA or something. And I did a, um, a cartoon that was Hugh Grant pictured with a prostitute in, in wherever. And there was the car and he was seated, his face was visible in the car, but nobody else was visible in the car. And, um, and <laughs> you have to think about it a bit. But anyway, <laughs> the subs decided that, that it was too much for the front page, too rude for the front page, but we could put it inside. It, could, it was okay, you could put it on page three and it wouldn't, wouldn't cause any, any trouble. So sometimes they, they, they decide that, that all right, we just, we'll just kind of bury it in there so it doesn't cause too much problem. Um, likewise, I can get away with a lot in in little cartoons. And when I first started started to do uh, larger editorial cartoons, I was amazed at how much more seriously they would be taken. And also that you you know er everything you you put down gets kind of weighed up and and you know pulled apart. I guess by by viewers. Do, where do you think it takes a certain sort of um, uh, sort of personality to be a political cartoonist? Because because uh, I haven't. I don't do a lot of controversial things, and when when I've come under fire, it's been sort of quite sort of tough. But I think that people that do it every day, um, you must develop a thick skin to and and conviction behind what you're saying to be able to take it. Or yeah, you have a few um, kind of important lessons that you learn along the way, and one of one of those was when I did a cartoon, I'd been filling in for Alan Moyer, uh, I. The things you know, you, you're drawing on. You, you get to choose your topic. You, you know, no one's telling you what to draw when you're drawing the editorial cartoon. At least not in the uh, in the Herald. So you're having to choose your topic and decide what the thing is of the day. And and I think I'd had a week where I'd done something on the Middle East and something on something else. And I was feeling like I was wallowing way out of my depth in all these big, big store, big topics. So then I thought, oh, today I would just like a quiet day. Oh, there was something happened in golf. Um, <laughs> I'll do something Whoa, about, something's happening about, golf. What, about what's his name, the, 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 um, the shark, um, who had lost again, something like that. Mm. And, um, and so I made some lame joke about calling him the bogeyman or something. And, and just it was one of those cartoons where I hoped that nobody would happen to open the paper that day and it would just, you know, <laughs> it'd be wrapped around fish and chips and no one would ever see. And I got this, this you know, this <laughs> strong articulate um, critique in the days when people actually sent letters. Um, this guy tapped out this thing about how dare I, you know, cut down this hero of Australian <laughs> golfing and, blah, 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 and you know, it's typical tall poppy and we can't, why can't we praise our own and cherish our own heroes and, blah, blah, blah. and so 
And I wasn't in the habit of, of either getting many letters or, or replying to them, but I kind of was so taken aback by this. And I wrote to him in, in a quite heartfelt way and said, well, you know, if you must, do, must know, I thought it was kind of a light thing after the Middle East and so-and-so. <laughs> I don't normally have to do this work. It's actually quite hard. And um, <laughs> maybe you'd like to know what it's like to come in and <laughs> think up something. Uh, anyway, so I was, you know, sorry to have dissed his, his hero, but I said, uh, you know, uh, it was it was only in, in the quest for a quiet life, really. So um, I got the next couple of days later, I got another letter from him saying that even though he had threatened in this first one to cancel his subscription, that actually he really liked my cartoon. He was really sorry he'd upset me. And... <laughs> And that he had just been having a really terrible day because he had received another rejection from a publisher from some manuscript that he had that he had sent in, and this is this is such a cherished lesson for me because it just you know it's the it's the thing that that kids have to learn from there you know that you're telling your children when they're going off to school and coming back with what some mean kids said to them you you're forever having to tell your kids. It's not about you, it's about them. It's about something that happened to them, it's about something that was said to them, you know. And, and I was able to go, that's, that's about the guy, it's not about me. So when I do receive stuff, I, you know, I, I consider it, uh, I consider where it's coming from. It's quite easy to consider where it's coming from when you get flack on Twitter because you go and have a look at the person's profile and notice, <laughs> notice the kinds of things that they say all the time to everybody and you go, okay, I'm just one of those people that this person likes firing out, you know, nasty things on block um and um and uh, so you know you do have to <laughs> you can be wrong you can't be you can't be arrogant you can't afford to believe that you know everything you say is right but but also you uh you have to accept your your kind of you know your your limitations your humanity mm. and and everybody else has shitty days yeah well i guess it comes back to glenn as well who has he's, he's been copying all this flack for being anti-semitic whom I believe is he's a good friend. I don't think he is at all. So, no. um, it's so it just but he's but he's just sort of taken it on the chin and sort of kept stum and yeah. and and ridden it out. You know, yeah. Yeah. which I think is the opposite of what Mike Carlton did. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, and why Glenn still well, got a job? Yes, Glenn has fought back on Facebook and other places where he has put up a lot of cartoons that have used the Star of David in them and have caused a lot of you know, flack at the different times. So, I mean, he, in doing that, in having that research available to him, and he would have known about it before he drew his cartoon, he would have known that putting the Star of David on the chair was going to get him a lot of attention. And But Glenn is not the sort of cartoonist who dodges attention. He's very happy for people to attack him and to complain about him and do things because he thinks he's making a point and and quite often he is and he and he has a, a good go at it. Um, I, it. Kathy was talking about being the the main political cartoonist in the paper and having time to think and consider your subjects. Um, for a long time, I drew pocket cartoons and I used to get about twenty minutes to think of the the cartoon, do the rough get it approved and then another 20 minutes to do the finished artwork. And on one occasion I had to do a cartoon, or was asked to do a cartoon, on um, half a dozen police cadets who had passed out in a police passing out parade. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, did a, I did a rough and 
it was accepted and I drew it and the next day I got a barrage of complaints. And what I drew was a, a row of police standing, you know, going down in, in size and looking like there was a big long row of them. And there was a little pile of collapsed ones lying on the ground and a medic there and, and a, a second medic saying, have you checked for swine fever? <laughs> <laughs> And I got all this barrage of you know, complaints from people saying, how dare I call the police pigs? Oh. <laughs> you just can't win some days. Oh. <laughs> so, um, with, with your cartoons, Anton, for the spec or your covers for Spectator, mm -hmm. you go through a, a long process of evolution with them, don't you? You have to do a rough and, you know. Yeah, well, often I'll do, um, I'll do between three and six uh, roughs, little thumbnail sketches I call them. Um, they're basically like stick figures and it's just, uh, they're very small little drawings just to get the composition right and the, the concept. Uh, so it's, this, this was a spectator cover but I, I'm pretty sure I, I would have given them three other sort of ideas to, to choose from. And once they choose that then I go and do a sketch which gets approved and then I go and do the ink and colour. Tony Abbott's got a great He's, he's one of the few characters that you can totally identify by the back of their head as well as their face. <laughs> so, yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> David Pope of the Canberra Times often does him from the back and he's got mm. a beautiful way of setting those ears out, a bit of shadow on the top. I just think, oh, David, you've done a great job. Well, well that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, so that's yeah, also yeah. that, the, the shorthand that <laughs> the, the, all the cartoonists sort of... Um, we learn from each other. Mm. Yep. Like when a new, when someone new comes on the scene, everyone will start looking at each, what each other's drawing, and and take cues. Mm, mm. And you know, I can't, I can't figure out how to do this. I'll have a look and see what Moyer's done. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. And it takes a while when there's new, when there's a new government. It takes a while to settle into the new faces. And yeah, there's definitely a lot of looking around and seeing. And and you can see if you look at cartoons. I mean, if you're really that cartoon obsessed and you look at cartoons from the beginning, you know, just say the first few months of a government. I mean, we've seen Tony Abbott a lot around anyway, so when you had to draw him. But, you know, maybe some other ministers and then see how they're looking cartoon-wise a year on. People of cartoons have really settled into the, their comfort zone with the faces. And, and also then maybe people do something that gives them something, you know, gives them a cigar or a pair of red Speedos or something that they've done that sticks, that works and that, you know, becomes a symbol of, of them in some way. I heard Sean Lay um, talk about... Um uh, who was it? Um, John Howard. Was it? Um, he was doing a talk, and he and he and he drew how he drew it. And he said, when we when John Howard first came on the scene, he had this little weak chin and the big head. And and as he went on in his prime ministership, he, his his jaw grew bigger, mm. and 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 his and his head grew smaller. And he he sort of became a different person as as the public got to know his personality. Mm. Mm. Yeah, he wasn't so feeble. He his Lower lip was more yeah, defiant lower lip kept, rather kept than out, bubble, yeah. bumbling kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, yeah. definitely. You look like Mr. Sheen in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there, I've heard editors say that as the cartoonist distorts the politician more and more, the politician becomes more and more like the cartoon character. <laughs> So, you know, it's... Patrick Cook figured that out too, yeah. didn't he? Yes. You know, he's, he, he, uh, he, Bob Hawke basically grew into Patrick Cook's drawing of it. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, there's actually a physical truth to that because men's noses and ears don't stop growing. And ladies. Are ladies yeah. too, yeah. do we? We don't miss out. Oh, no, no, there, no. there goes peoples. that, yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, people. So, you know, they do actually, as... 
you know, mm. men get older, or and and women, as I've found <laughs> out, our noses. So so you do because there are those things that are often exaggerated in a caricature. So people grow to ac actually look more mm. like their caricature. Yeah, Bill Mitchell, who cartooned for the Australian for a long time, used to draw Paul Keating, and he started off with a little bumpy nose, and uh, the more every time he drew Bill, uh, drew Keating the nose got longer and longer and in the end the nose was coming halfway down his mm. chest. <laughs> so it was, you know. And he had a good, that Keating's uh, caricature evolved as well because he really yeah. would, had that sort of sneering looking down his nose, like his nose worked, yeah. as, like, like like Tony Abbott Speedo's work because he is both, Action man. like literally and um, figuratively hairy chested, you know. He, yeah. he likes doing the macho thing so that image works and you know Keating's nose works and yeah. all that sort of. So when Fiona draws a cartoon every week for uh, New Matilda, which is a four-panel mm. uh, cartoon, with four, four panels and each is a separate idea, uh, they're unrelated. Um, so how long does it take you, Fiona, to develop those four panels? And well, the idea prob ideas probably take about, uh, sometimes they all come together really, really fast and sometimes it's slow, but it's the drawing. I still do the old... Like school, I don't know. I don't know. Probably a computer takes a long time as well. But I still do the get a piece of paper, draw it in a pencil, then paint all the colours in in watercolour. So I've got my hairdryer furiously going all day, blowing each like drying each colour, and then I do black ink dipped in a nib pen over the top. So the most impractical, messy, and time-consuming process. So probably to draw it all up can take around six hours. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. Oh, depend oh, no, some oh, I don't know, sometimes it doesn't take anywhere near as long as that, but if it's a tricky caricature, if it's someone I'm not used to drawing. That's actually, I don't know, it's really unpredictable. Sometimes the whole thing will take four hours and sometimes it'll take a lot, that, lot longer. And mm. if you've got six hours that's sort of dispersed in, in there is yeah. making lunch for the kids. And yeah, 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 and also because I work from home and... Yeah. Hey, guys, <laughs> joys of my life, yeah. So, I, yeah, I have that, that, that happiness is mine, the eternal working work Working all the time you're yes. in school, she's working, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, yes, yes, so it is broken up. But then that's kind of, that's, that's a really good thing about being a cartoonist and working from home. One of the good things about it is, hmm. and I've kept working when the kids were born, and not, not in bits and pieces, but a little child won't understand if their mum just wants to sit or, you know, maybe they will, but sit in a typewriter and type all day. But kids can draw, so they go, oh, mum's drawing pictures. I can do that. I can sit. So it's like, I'm actually working, guys. No, no, <laughs> mum just draws pictures. No, it's my, it's my job. Well, that's funny. So, cause, yeah, it's cause taken mine, them a while to adjust to that, yeah. Well, my daughter's five, and she calls drawing work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And, and, and she's got a little studio with all her stuff, and that's, and that's her office. So. <laughs> So you, you work from home? Yeah. 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 And, and you work in the office and at home? I work in the office and at home, but I've been, been working at home a lot, a lot lately. Um, Is that because Fairfax have downscaled the building and they don't have no, spare no, no. desks? No, look, there's a, I'm one of the rare people with a desk I can call my own at, at oh. Fairfax. They, they went to hot desking and so people have got to kind of, you know, log into where there's space. There's plenty of space, I've got to say. Um, uh, but uh, no, just for, you know, reasons of... of <laughs> Family logistics and um, and a new puppy and various things. Um, oh, I'm, don't I'm get started on your beautiful new puppy. <laughs> right. But I'm I'm working from home a lot and I'm actually quite efficient at home. Um, I I it I go in to the office because I also like to you know kind of get a bit of feedback. The trouble with working from home, especially if doing editorial cartoons, 
is sometimes I just, you know, there are times when I'm really sure of the idea and I put it down and it's, you know, draw it up quickly. I'm much faster at drawing than, than Fiona. It's usually, you know, within half an hour or an hour that it's drawn. But I might be lazy, I don't know. <laughs> um, but, and, and off it goes. But there are times when it takes a lot longer and I, or I might have, you know, two or three ideas and I just can't decide what's, mm. what's right. The other, I think the other Sunday... Um, I had to go down and, um, and, and bother one of my neighbours because I said, look, I've got these... Luckily, my neighbours work in media as well, so they're, they're across what I'm working with. But, you know, I had the worthy idea. I had the contentious, you know, or edgy one. I had the one that was just kind of plain, plain gag, which was George Brandis popping out of a woman's um, underwear drawer with his, you know, <laughs> with his metadata, um, saying he was only interested in the underwear and not what was inside it. And... Um, <laughs> And, you know, that was the one that got the laughs from the neighbours. And I'm, so I went ahead with that one. So you don't, you don't know the, the really, you know, worthwhile gear that's, that's just not, not going to air because, um, <laughs> because of what, the, what, the, um, because of what I can't decide about. There was a cartoon that flashed up here a little while ago that was um, a, a scene of, of um, just bones spread across, a, um, off, across ground, which was called Fertilising the, the, the Soil of Gaza. And it was just an idea which... I drew up, which I was thinking of submitting, but I sort of went... Mm, it was very close after the, um, the, the Glen La Livre and, and so forth, and I just sort of thought, I'm, I was on my own. If I'd been in the office and I could have maybe run it past the eyes of, of a couple of people I, whose judgment I um, respect, you know, it's not, usually, it's not necessarily, and it's not even usually the, the editor, but it's usually there's a couple of people who I, I know... I, I know how they read my work and, and, and I can read their reactions, so... But I didn't have anyone to show it to, and I just sort of thought mm, it might be it might be too much at the moment, so I I uh, held it back. That's interesting what you said about reading their reactions, because I've I've found that it, it's it's it can be sort of isolating in a you know working from home, and I've I've emailed people for um, opinions on things, but yeah, obviously they they can think about and craft their response, but you can't look at them while while they're looking mm. at them. Exactly, you've got to see their face. Yeah. And the people who laugh all the time don't go there. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> you go, you've got to have go a, to the tough critics. Yeah, you've got and you've got to have a critic who gets it as well. Like people who just might not think that way. Like, yeah, you've got to have yeah, got to have the right critic because get, getting criticism from the wrong person, even if they think it's constructive, but yeah. they might just be thinking in a completely different way that doesn't help at all. Yeah, good. Yeah. Um, coming up with ideas and. And the amount of time people spend on it—it's it's not always obvious to the public that. But um, Sid Nichols, who drew Fatty Finn from the 1920s through to the late 1970s, um, comic strip, and he used to call it doing battle with a blank sheet of paper. And um, uh, other times he'd say it was like being a boxer because you're in there on your own and you've just got to just got to get on with it. Um, and and th he—that's. That was his perspective, and, <laughs> and other, other. Cess Hart, who cartooned in the 1920s, said that he would have been better off if he'd been a tin whistle and not a cartoonist, because mm. with a tin whistle, every time you wanted to perform, all you've got to do is blow in it. Mm. <laughs> so, um, I, do, I do know cartoonists who have um, had nervous <laughs> breakdowns because of the pressure and other cartoonists who thrive on it. So it is a personal thing. Um, there's one cartoonist I know that that was working for the newspapers in Sydney and he'd come down from the central coast every day on the train. And as the pressure built up, 
in his, in in his with him, within him he got to the point where he couldn't go in the building hmm. where the, where the office was and then he would uh he'd get as he he started to retreat further from the building he wouldn't get off the train or or and then he gave up going to work and then he gave up getting out of bed and he spent a year in bed trying to get over the fact that he he couldn't cop the pressure in the end he went off and became a teacher so you know thing pressure pressure is on cartoonists to to perform you, do you have that pressure anton <coughs> I like a certain amount of pressure. Um, I like I like a short deadline, but um, up to a certain point, when I know that I can do a good job, when the pressure is too much, that I finding that the quality would slip. Um, it's I sort of tend to, to to get a bit nervous. But I, but I, I like that sort of constant every day. You know, the deadline, having needing to get something done by a certain time. Um, I don't think I'd get anything done if I didn't have a deadline. Mm. How, how do you approach deadlines? Oh, I like it. I, I like the adrenaline rush, and I like it when you do... Like, when I've filled in for Cathy <laughs> before at the Herald in the Pocket cartoons, and because they were expecting Cathy to be there and didn't realise I was working from home and stuff, so things were a bit delayed, it was like, OK, we're sending you four articles. You've got to come up with a cartoon for each article, a rough, and send it back, and it's already four o'clock, and um, they need to all be in by eight. And sort of, you just go... Okay, this could be the spectacular catastrophe, or I could just go. Yeah, you know, it's so like, more like about six now. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And it was, and then I couldn't get approved. That no one was there to, and they all approved them in the. I thought, but I, and also because part of the reason mine takes so long, and I actually they don't take. I was thinking about it. They don't actually take my cartoons. Don't take anywhere near as long to draw as I just said. But it's the actual mess. They're very wet mm. ink and mm. wet. So there's just a lot of drying that needs to be done and a lot a of hurry. yes and if you're in a hurry and you go is, i'll yeah. just rub out the pencil like oh yes yes you rub out the pencil <laughs> yes oh that that cursed ink hasn't quite dried yeah thing i've done that many times yeah when so, you, when yeah. cartoonists get together they talk about ink mm. they say oh really and you've got something that and it dries quickly wow <laughs> what's that like does it go gummy in the in the bottle yeah no oh, and is wow, it a really good black that? is it a dense black or is it a, <laughs> yes. oh, no, i think i've had that conversation with you before yeah. yes <laughs> Um, cartoonists draw on paper or traditionally oh. draw on paper and, and it used to be all a cartoonist needed was a piece of paper and a pencil and they could work almost anywhere and then uh, and that started to uh, disappear in the 1980s when fax machines arrived and a cartoonist could draw and they could sit at home and they could send a, a fax off with the cartoon in it but the days of the facts are long gone, and now if a cartoonist wants to work at home, they need a piece of paper and a pencil and a computer and a program to often a program to uh, to do the colouring in with the and the drawing and and, 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 and the and line the, work and well. the drawing and the artwork and a scanner <laughs> and then the the email system where they can do, send the JPEG off. So while a cartoonist can sit at home, they've probably got ten thousand dollars worth of equipment which is a lot more expensive than a piece of paper and a pencil, which they needed, you know, 20 years ago. Or... Yeah. Or they might have a thing um, on their iPad called Paper, which is an app, you know, that where they can just go uh, with the pen and go... Press it. 
and and then and then they can get the paint color and they can go a paintbrush and then they can go color it in uh, I have sent in very few but a couple like if I've been away for a weekend and need to and need to be able to file a cartoon I have actually used it for that and then I think you what do you do I think you minimize it and then there's a little button here that goes send and then you decide whether you're tweeting it or or emailing it or whatever and you go email and and you just send off your image like that it's so um, is, it, is that is that print quality it is print quality really? it's hmm. it's high-res and there are there are more and I'm I am by the way complete tech Luddite I'm only doing this because my my son showed it to me and I went Oh, that looks so good. I want to have a go at that. So it hasn't. It's not yet the answer to um, to all your prayers, but it it means that it is actually possible to do something without all that other equipment. The um, there are better and better cursors being uh, around. I mean, I can use my finger on it, as you, as you saw. You can use a sort of a little cursor, but uh, my my tech-minded son is forever t telling me what the latest update is. I haven't got it yet, but I'm going to get something which is which is more pressure-sensitive, like a proper mm. pencil and things like that. So you can, because the hard thing is doing writing in in this. Um, you can do your big, quick drawings, and it has a nice spontaneity of um, of style. Um, kids. Kids pick it up straight away, um, sort of things like that. I was I was doing a um, a thing for TV uh, in uh, in a recent trip to France, and uh, and so and they gave they gave me some topics that were going to be talked about there and then. So I just sort of did it while I was talking, you know, while I was listening for the TV, and and they were able to um, I was able to send them to a person who could then flash them up pretty kind of quickly. So um, yeah, so it is. Uh, it's uh, it's it's good what what um, comes out. So yeah, you, the, the cartoonist may need all of that technology, but it's so much more instantaneous than the old process. I have worked during um, uh, blackouts in the olden days mm -hmm. when uh, I had to get a head torch to do my work <laughs> at home. <laughs> <laughs> because we had no lights, and um, and then once finished the drawing, get in the car and drive into the office and hand my cartoon to whoever was you know the processing it. They would they would go and do the scanning, and and then that would be you know image adjusted, and then that would go you know to all the to all the printing. So these days it's just draw it, scan it, email it. It goes to the sub editor who's making up the page. Bingo! It's on the it's on the page in in you know a few minutes. Some things do go over to Malaysia for processing or the Philippines or something, but um, but basically it's it's instantaneous. Yeah, and I think uh, we've got a few minutes left, so I thought um, if there are any questions, anybody? Oh, good, there's none. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anybody got any questions, or they can relate to what we've been talking about, or bring in a new subject? Uh, I do, these days I, I actually sketch digitally well, to start with. I just find it easier to, you know, rub out, move things around, get it all right. Probably about a third of the case, um, like, well, this is digital. Uh, a third of the time I'll probably ink, um, brush and ink on paper, and then I'll scan it back in and do all the colouring. Um, the other two thirds of the time I'll just ink the whole thing within Photoshop. 
um, and uh, and, then, and and very occasionally um, I haven't left any any fractions, but occasionally I'll just do a, a little piece. I think there's a Malcolm Turnbull in an L. I'm not sure if that's in here. That was just a, a quick little ink ink wash on paper. So so very rarely though will I do something like these guys where it's completely traditional. Um, but but most but even it, even when I do do traditional stuff, I always start with a sketch digitally these days. Mm. I just find it easier. Who's your favourite person to draw? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Who are you asking, Maxie? Do you want to ask everyone? All of us? Yeah. I'll just have a little think. You go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I recently drew Bob Carr and, and that, he was pretty fun on the, on the camel. So. <laughs> and he's, he's got a real um, uh, Lincoln thing about him as well. There's, uh, uh, he looks mm. a bit Abraham Lincoln, yeah. something about his, his, his face. That sort of shallow sort yeah. of cheeks yeah. and... I quite like drawing Joe Hockey <laughs> and and one of the funny things or, or possibly unfortunate things about Joe Hockey is in spite of all his efforts to lose a large amount of weight, we cartoonists um, are kind of relentless in depicting him as still carrying that weight and so it must be, it must be <laughs> annoying for him to see. But... Um, but when you finally crack a caricature that you've been working at and, you know, approximating, and I don't spend a lot of time on caricatures, so sometimes I just go, you know, go with the minimum of, of, of things that indicate. But when you, when you kind of finally figure out how their face is put together and, and it looks like them in very few lines, that's quite a nice, mm. nice moment. Mm. Do you need me to hold the baby for you? <laughs> I like babies. Right. Do you find there's much uh, crossover between uh, formal media and social media with the cartoons? Do they go viral? Do you sort of is, do you trace? Do you sort of follow them? Is there some, do you get much feedback on that? They, they take a life of their own sometimes. Um, well, yeah, they definitely do. Um, the 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 feedback is instantaneous, obviously. When you can post something, you know, and and immediately you get comments and and likes or favorites or whatever. So that's that's gratifying. Um, uh, unfortunately, sometimes I think we do ourselves out of a disservice by just putting it out there, because one of these days our employers are going to work out that that we're sort of giving away their content <laughs> that they're paying us for. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a hard thing to juggle. But um, yeah, uh, but whereas I don't know, I think the printed form has a lot of power in itself because online people just look, yeah, yeah, favorite like, like people don't look at stuff. Whereas if it's on a magazine or a newspaper, it'll sit there, it'll it'll sit on your mm -hmm. on the coffee table, it'll sit on the breakfast table. People will read it. I think it sinks in a lot more. No, it's mine. That's <laughs> yours. Oh, yes, right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's in, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I uh, you finished yes. with regard to that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm. Um, I'm quite an avid user of um, of Twitter um, for the cartoons, and and I can offer you the the measure of um, of strong reaction in a cartoon in the old method, which was by writing letters to the Herald. And um, so, if a cartoon went really really well, there might be three letters to the editor, um, uh, you know, over a f series of days maybe. And um, uh, and if a cartoon does really, really well on Twitter, there'll be, you know, maybe a couple of hundred retweets and you've got that in a couple of days. So, so when somebody um, that I know who is an actor said to me, well, isn't, isn't Twitter just all about, you know, self-affirmation? Um, you know, it's all just a vanity. So I said, so when you do a performance in a, you know, on a stage, 
Um, does the audience sit there quietly and then maybe one or two members of the audience a couple of weeks later come up to you and say, I really like what you did on the stage there. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a kind of, it is instantly yeah. affirming, but it's, um, it's actually, it's an affirmation that, that we can have worked for a very, very long time without ever having had. Um, so it, it's, I found it quite an interesting thing because it ends up, you're not just dependent on mm. your employer, Oh, for for a kind of measure of of your worth or how if something's going well you don't often hear from your employer you basically have to change employer to, to be told that you're that you're fabulous um, it, it, it's usually a good thing when when, <laughs> when the editor doesn't say anything that's right they haven't said anything for ages i've still got my job um, but uh but it, yeah it is quite um it's 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 interesting to know how much reach you you have, and and it clearly makes it gives you a wider reach than than uh, just being in in print or online. And the dark side of that is also sometimes you'll think, oh, I've done a really good cartoon, and then you tweet it, and then you go, oh. <laughs> I want to respond. <laughs> yeah, so it's also like, and then you know, but then. So you can you can you can worry about that stuff too much. But one lovely thing about Twitter is that so many cartoonists and illustrators are on it, and it is quite a lonely. Or for a lot a lot of cartoonists now, whether they work for a newspaper or freelancer, work by like John Cadelka works at home. Yeah. Um, First Dog on the Moon does most of his stuff at home, and so it's if we all sort of chat and we all sort of know each other from stuff anyway. But it's been a nice little, you know, and and you know you see someone else's cartoon, and you go, isn't that great? I'll you know tweet that as well so there's a nice collegial feeling about it that's that's really been unexpected little yeah pleasure it's, about it's it. like yeah. the Fairfax art room of about um, 20 odd years ago when we were in at Broadway and there was one large room where all the artists desks were and stuff and and there we would chat and we would socialize and we would you know maybe go for lunch or or, or drink after work or something and this is minus the drink um, or the lunch you know <laughs> there is nevertheless it's kind of a nice it's a nice chatting going on yeah. during your working day and and it also means that you're not just getting the news um, your, your input from mm. one source you're getting your input from many many different sources mm. and mm. I found that really um, really helpful and yeah yeah. yeah it's good for keeping your finger on the pulse of news and what's going on for mm. sure did you have a question someone there no, no. <laughs> if, any more questions oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like to draw on the computer or do you like to draw on paper? Which one do you like more? Um, uh, is this to me? Um, yeah. I, I, like, I like both. The drawing on the computer is, is sort of safe in a way because there's always that lovely undo button. Um, but drawing on paper, there's something magical about it. The fact that there is no undo button, especially if you're using black ink. Um, so yes, I know they need to, yeah. they need a market of black ink with the undo button. <laughs> I think. But but often and often there are mistakes, but they're left in, and, and I think it gives the work character. Whereas a lot of some digital work, it's it, you can get it as perfect as you like, uh, and I think um, uh, there's a lot of work that's too perfect. Even myself, I think I, I prefer it when when there are a few mistakes. I can come over and trash it for you <laughs> if you like. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've um, tried to use it. I got and I think maybe you just get used to a tablet. But because I draw with uh, like the nib pen dipped in ink um, and that just has such a, the f it is heaven the feeling of that gripping a nice slightly rough watercolour like oh, I just do it go, oh, just this line it just you know you don't even have to be drawing anything particularly good it's just such a wonderful feeling and then when I've tried to use a tablet it feels like drawing with a prong of a plastic fork on a plastic plate there's just no grip <laughs> and I, I, I'm sure you get used to it because people do vary and I just go oh the line weight is too even there's not the random doesn't it well you feels can actually like, yeah. get these little nibs that are rough 
they give it a bit more drag. Yes, it, oh, I see. That's but, uh, but you just get used to it. It's yeah, I know. Oh, I think you get you because I know people who've gone digital. Like most cartoonists are digital now, and they started off and it was very look too perfect, and they've managed to make it it's looser. Like, it's like yeah. digital sound that's managed to get the crackle back into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Why? and they spend thousands of dollars developing Photoshop <laughs> things to make it feel like real wedding, yeah. you know, whereas, you know. That's right. You just, uh, Yes, he has yes. a question now. Um, I find it very frustrating that the pen doesn't seem to, tip of the pen doesn't seem to be where the line is. Mm. So if you go on to a continue yeah. a line or draw a new one, it goes somewhere, you know. Do you, do you have that problem? Or Are you not? talking about the little, slight little the, the, gap whatever you call those between styles. the glass and the screen? Uh, the, the, so you draw a pen. line and then you go to continue the line or take off from that point. You know, your pen, the, the stylus point doesn't start at that point. Mm. Do you find that a not, problem? I'm not at all? really sure. That sounds like a hardware issue or something. Mm. You shouldn't no, be using eyes. ink on the on the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <pad>. <laughs> okay. uh, it's it's just I guess it's just a, another tool that you get used to. It took me about a year to get used to drawing digitally, mm. um, and uh, to the point where I felt that it, I could replicate my my brushwork. Mm. Uh, so I think your style, your digital stuff, has a very brushworky style. Yeah, well, my, my, yeah, I, I really tried to, to, to get it the same, and it took a long time, you know. It's, it's, it's another tool to master, you know. Yeah, sure. Do you ever want to apologise to any of the people that you lampoon? No. Because you must bump <laughs> up against them every now and then, see them in real life. Did, can I? Yeah, just go ahead. You can make your apology now. <laughs> um, I've quoted Bill Leake a few times, so I'll quote him again. Um, and I was in his office once, at, of studio, whatever you call it, at the Australian, and he was doing somebody and the phone rang and it was a government minister, or the office of a government minister, asking for an original that he had of a cartoon that he'd had in the paper. And Bill said, you know, you spend all bloody day trying to draw a cartoon to make the politician look like an absolute nasty person. And the next thing, they're on the phone wanting the original. He said, you just can't win. <laughs> and that's, that's very common too. I think there's a sort of egotism with high profile politicians that, because uh, Philip Ruddock has a massive cartoon collection of cartoons about himself and he was interviewed about it. It's like, oh, look, Peter. this was back in when he was the Minister for Immigration. You know, he was saying, oh, look, Peter Nicholson draws me with blue skin like a cadaver. Isn't that funny? <laughs> <laughs> you think that's funny? <laughs> really? That's, that's, you know, thought, and, and. I thought so, they just acquired them to take them out of circulation. No, well, there's <laughs> quite a few. Uh, George Brandis, I have ne haven't seen his cartoon collection, but he has a big cartoon collection. Amanda Vanstone has a big cartoon. So there's quite a few that. Bronwyn Bishop. Yeah, and they just one. love. Yeah, I think Bronwyn Bishop has quite a. She, she certainly isn't offended at all by the way oh, she's depicted in cartoons. She thinks it's glorious. So, <laughs> and you know, I'm sure there's Labor people the same. It's, 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 there's a funny. It's like, oh, they're talking about me. And you're like, yes, but they're totally insulting you and saying you're a bad human being. Oh, Talking. And Amanda Vanstone once phoned me um, when she was clearing out her office, and I was thinking, "Oh no, what have I done? What have I? How have I drawn her? Oh no, what have I done?" Uh, I think I drew her sitting on somebody one time, and <laughs> but um, anyway, no, she just phoned me to tell me that she really liked my cat cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Keating came to the Stanley Awards on one occasion and addressed the crowd, and he at the at those awards. This was just before he became Prime Minister. He said, there's only one thing worse than finding that you're the subject of a cartoon. 
and he said, and that is that somebody else is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know if mine came up here with the um, Clive Palmer. Um, most people would probably think that's not very um, flattering, but I got a call from his office that to 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 buy to buy that one. But but I think the question was, were anyone offended? Um, I've had uh, Mark Latham uh, has has apparently. Um, uh, Kicked your door down. <laughs> well, he's 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 um, he's threatened to uh, to beat me up over one depicting me as a uh, Lathamstein. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. In actual fact, the editor of the Spectator, Tom Switzer, called me and said, "Listen, just you know, I would lay low. <laughs> if you see Mark Latham, <laughs> stay away." <laughs> you don't drive cabs, do you? Yeah. <laughs> Mainly just try to try to offend people who've got a really weak right arm and, and, a, and a floppy sort of a wrist. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think we've. Um, We've run over time a little bit, and so I thought I'd just uh, pull the plug. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley events and news.